Okay, Matthew chapter 5, and we've been in this section where Jesus is correcting false interpretations of the law that were common, commonly believed uh, during his day, but are not consistent with the true interpretation of the law as taught by the prophet Moses. And so this is what he's been addressing <clears throat> in these various ways. So we're going to read tonight, we'll start in verse 17 and read through the end of the chapter, and then we'll finish this chapter tonight, and then move on into chapter 6 next week. So, But tonight we're going to focus on 43 to 48. 43 to 48. Okay, Matthew chapter 5, we'll start reading in verse 17. It says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go to hell. It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said of those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, Do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? 
You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time to meet together tonight to study your word. And Lord, we do pray that you would uh, help us to rightly see and understand how it is that we are to live the Christian life. Lord, what it means to to love and to uh, practice uh, true righteousness. Lord, that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. Lord, that we need to be holy just as our Father in heaven is holy. So Lord, teach us what it means to to love our neighbor and to do good to those who persecute us uh, so that, Lord, we might prove ourselves to be your children, Lord, that we might prove ourselves to be redeemed uh, and that we are walking in the light as you are in the light. Lord, as well, we pray that you would protect us from any false interpretations that are prevalent today, Lord, especially in regards to uh, superficial love and superficial grace that are so common in the churches today. So, Lord, guard us in all of these things that we might uh, walk in the pathway of true righteousness and, Lord, true love and do those things that are pleasing to you. So, Lord, be with us tonight. Uh, help us. Give us the mind of Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so we're in this passage where Jesus is, he's, he's taught already that he did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, right? That this is a very necessary teaching because... Commonly, what is happening in many places today and in many churches is that people are trying to put the law and Christ or Moses and Christ, the law and the gospel, uh, you know, grace and obedience, whatever it is. They want to set these things that in the Bible are not in opposition to one another, but are in complete harmony. Yet they want to make these things in opposition so that they can get rid of something. On the other side, there is a corrupt view of love which is more common and prevalent in our own day, where people will use these passages to promote this kind of sissy love that is within the churches, where you can't talk about sin, you can't confront sin, you can't do any of those things, you just have to love everyone. And this is what they'll say, right? we're supposed to turn the other cheek, or, or that we're supposed to love everyone and only do good and only pray for them. And then they'll use this passage to undermine those passages like in the book of Psalms, where the psalmist is praying imprecations against his enemies. Imprecatory prayers, where the psalmist is praying for God to vindicate him and to destroy his enemies. And they'll say, no, we can't do that today. That was only in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, we're supposed to love our enemy and we're supposed to pray for those who persecute us and we're never supposed to pray against them. So we can only pray for people, but we can never pray against them. But what does the Bible teach? Well, the Bible teaches both. It teaches both in the Old Testament and it teaches both in the New Testament. There is a place to love and pray for our enemies in the Old and in the New Testament. And there is a place to hate and to pray against our enemies in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the context, the situation determines how it is that we are to respond, right? That's the consistent teaching from cover to cover in the Bible, and that's the view that we have to hold. So we cannot stray to the left, nor can we stray to the right, but we need to walk in the straight paths of the Lord and understand what each situation requires and how it is that we are to respond in various ways. So let's go there then to verse 43. Verse 43 says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
here he's quoting from the Old Testament. You have heard, right? This is what you're being told, right? It was said, you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And what he is assuming here is that the interpretation that the people have is that loving your neighbor is one thing and hating your enemy is something else. And that there's a place to love your neighbor and then there's a place to hate your enemy. But there's never a place to love your enemy, right? That these two are exclusive. So we determine who our neighbor is and we love them. And then we determine who our enemies are. And then we only hate them, but we never show any love to them. And then people are using the Bible, the Old Testament, to promote this false teaching. So let's look at the passages that would be used to promote this. First, love. Love your neighbor. Leviticus chapter 19 Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18. Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18 says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Here, even this passage contradicts this notion that we are only to hate our enemy because here, when he's telling them to love your neighbor, he's saying, don't take vengeance or bear a grudge. Well, why would someone want to take vengeance or bear a grudge if he's been wronged? If someone has done something against him, right, that's when he wants to get vengeance and that's when he's going to want to bear a grudge against them and go and enact exact justice on his own against them. And here Moses is saying, you can't do this, right? You shall not do this, but instead you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So even here, loving your neighbor in Leviticus, right? This is Leviticus, law of Moses, right? This is the one that's the most bizarre to people, the one that's the most legalistic in the minds of people. Yet even here, Moses is teaching that we are to love our enemy, right? In this passage. Because who else would you bear a grudge against? And who else would you want to get vengeance against? You don't want to do that to your family, right? You don't want to do that to your friends. You want to do that to your enemy, right? Someone who has wronged you, someone who has sinned against you. But he says, no, you can't do that. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So your neighbor must include the one that you might bear a grudge against and the one that you want vengeance against. So Moses is teaching that we should love our neighbor. So love your neighbor. So there it is said, love your neighbor. But also they're saying, hate your enemy. Hate your enemy. Well, which passages teach to hate your enemy? First, Deuteronomy 23. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 3. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever, because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you. Because the Lord your God loved you, you shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all your days forever. So here, in terms of nations, 
the Ammonites and the Moabites were enemies of the people of Israel. Now, who instigated it, this animosity? It wasn't the Israelites that instigated it against the Ammonites and the Moabites, but they instigated it against the people of Israel whenever they would not come out and help them. Whenever the Israelites were in a desperate situation, though the Ammonites and Moabites are brothers of theirs, they're relatives of theirs, they would not come and give assistance to the Israelites whenever they were on their way from Egypt into the land of promise. But instead, they hired the false prophet Balaam to come and to curse them. That's what they did. And so here he's saying, these people, these enemies, shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. They're not allowed to enter into the assembly, meaning they cannot worship with you because they are idolatrous people and therefore you're not to seek their peace or their prosperity. You're not supposed to do that. Now, is this, uh, does this mean exhaustively that no Moabite, no Ammonite could ever become an Israelite, could ever enter the assembly of the Lord? Well, no, it doesn't mean it in that way because we know that Ruth was a Moabite and she entered the assembly of the Lord. Right? She became a very high-ranking person in terms of the lineage of Christ, right? Ruth. And she's even mentioned specifically in the lineage of Christ. So here it's in terms of their, their spiritual depravity of the Ammonites and Moabites and what they did against the Israelites. So in this way, they are enemies of theirs. And one might take this to mean, okay, then we can hate the Ammonites and Moabites, and we can just mistreat them and abuse them in any way, shape, or form that we want. Also, how about Psalm 139? Psalm 139. Psalm 139, verse 19. Psalm 139, 19. says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. So here, the psalmist is desiring for God to slay the wicked. Right? He's desiring for God to get vengeance against God's enemies because God's enemies are his enemies, and he loathes those who rise up against God. He hates those who hate God, right? And he even says, I hate them with complete hatred, and I count them my enemies. So here, the desire is for justice, is for God's glory, God's honor, for justice, and for God's name to be defended. But in this passage, when he's saying these things, does it mean when it says that I hate them with complete hatred, that if he sees one of these enemies on the side of the road, beaten and left for dead, that he's just going to walk by the other side, he's going to kick him while he's down and then leave him there and let him die. Is that what he's going to do? No. So here, though he is saying he hates them, he has a specific thing in mind, right? And that is dealing with the glory of God, the desire for justice, the desire for God to get retribution, right, for the glory of God, because they're sinning against God, 
He wants God to act and defend his own glory and his own honor. And it is his desire for the glory of God that is motivating him to detest the sin of the wicked and the very person of the wicked because of their sin, right? That's what he hates about them. It is their wickedness and their iniquity. Psalm 31, verse 6. Psalm 31, 6. It says, I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. So there, I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols. He detests them. He wants nothing to do with them. He doesn't want to be like them, right? He doesn't want anything to do with their sin. He's not going to let them influence him. He's not going to have his close associations with them. He's not going to do that, right? So in a way, yes, we are to hate the wicked and those who pay regard to worthless idols. We're not going to be buddy-buddy with them. They're not going to be our best friends. We're not going to have them over every night for dinner and to play games, right? We're not going to do that because I don't want him influencing me, and I don't want his children around my children. I don't want them to be around us because I know he's a corrupt man, he's an idolatrous man, and I don't want his idolatry influencing me or my family. But does that mean that when I see him, I'm going to throw an egg at him? When I see him, I'm going to spit in his face. I'm going to slug him in the head. No, of course not, right? He doesn't mean it in that way. He means it in regards to sin, right? To sin and his hatred of sin and his desire to not be influenced or corrupted by that sin and for God to vindicate his own glory and honor. How about Psalm 119? 119 verse 158. Psalm 119, 158 says, I look at the faithless with disgust because they do not keep your commandments. So they're looking with disgust on someone, right? They're reprehensible to me. I disgust them, right? And, and why is this? It's not because of some offense he did to me, but because they're not keeping God's commandments. They don't keep God's commandments Therefore, I look on them with disgust, and I don't want to be like them, right? I, I, I hate what they do, and I don't want to be like them. So here you have love your neighbor, and you have hate your enemy. Now, these passages that teach hatred toward the enemy, does that mean hatred and hatred only, and that there's no place to love the enemy, no place to do good to them, that we don't have any obligation to love the enemy because the Bible teaches us that we are supposed to hate our enemies. So is it merely or only exclusively hatred? And is that what's taught in the Old Testament? And the answer is no. The Old Testament is teaching that there is a proper place to hate your enemy and there is a proper place to love your enemy and that we have to practice both of them according to the context and according to to the situation. And that's what Jesus is correcting. So they have misapplied these passages to mean that there is no obligation for the children of God toward their enemies, but rather that you can just do whatever you want to them and that we're only obligated to love our neighbor and neighbor has come to mean our friends and our family. But who loves their friends and their family? 
Everyone, right? Everyone loves their friends and their family. That's the whole point that Jesus is going to make in this passage, right? That everyone does that. So how is that different than anyone else if you're just loving those who love you? And that's what he says in verse 44. Here is the correction, right? What is the proper view? But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So the correction to this false interpretation is love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That you need to love them, right? Yes, there is a place to have disgust toward them, to detest them, to hate them and the sin that they commit, to pray for God's vengeance, to pray for God's justice, that God would come and execute it upon them. But there's also a place to love them, and there's a place to pray for them. And what do we need to practice? Both of those, right? Both of those need to be practiced, right? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So there is a place for both of these in our righteousness and in what we practice. It's not one or the other. This is what people do. Here, they're making it one, which is hate, and not the other, love. Today, what people do is it's love and it's never hate. You can never hate. You can never pray against people. You can never read or pray the imprecations that are in the Bible against anyone. You just have to love them and pray for their salvation. And again, yes, there is a place to love them and pray for their salvation, but there are these other passages as well, and we have to give them due justice. And this was understood and taught even in the Old Testament. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 teaches us that there is a time for both of these. A time for both love and hate. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 1 says, For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. So there's both. There's both a time for love, a time to love our enemies, and a time to hate our enemies. There's a time to be at peace with your enemies, and there's a time to wage war against your enemies. Right? In the context, the situation determines what we are supposed to do. Right? If the enemy is minding his own business, he's not a threat to me, then I shouldn't be instigating conflicts with this guy. I should do as best I can to live at peace with him. But if the enemy is breaking into my home, trying to harm me and my children, it's not time to be at peace with him. It's not time to love him. It's not time to ask him if he needs something to eat or something to drink. But if he's trying to harm me and my family, then it's time to wage war against him. It's time to kill him if necessary in order to defend my life and the life of my wife and my children. So each determines what it is that we are supposed to do. 
if he is in a desperate situation, if he is helpless there and he needs assistance, then it's time for me to love him. But if he's trying to harm me, then it's time to oppose him and to do those types of things. And the situation will determine it. So here, Jesus is correcting the false interpretation. That's why he's emphasizing love. This is why he's emphasizing the necessity of loving your neighbor uh, and doing and praying for those who persecute you. Because our natural tendency that rises up from the flesh is to want to get vengeance, is to want to only hate them, and then to try to justify that hatred by using the Bible. And he's saying we can't do this. So love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love here means do good to them. As far as you can, in whatever ways that are available to you, you are to do good to those who are your enemies, right? Whether that is at work, whether that is in the family, right? Whether that is in the neighborhood, in the community, wherever it is, as far as you're able to, you are to do good to those who are your enemies. Do good to them by doing practical things for them, helping them, providing assistance for them in their time of need or in their time of desperation. And also, he says, pray for them. Pray for their salvation, right? Pray that God would convert them. Pray that God would open their eyes, right? And love them. Preach the gospel to them, right? Tell them the truth about their sin, about the judgment of God, about the need of salvation. Isn't that loving them? Well, that's the greatest, most loving thing that we can do for them is to preach the gospel. So if the opportunity arises, preach the gospel to them and pray for them that God would save them, open their eyes, and that they might be converted. Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, we have an example of this in a very difficult situation with Stephen when he's being put to death, right? So they're committing great evils against him. And yet when he's dying, he's praying for those who are putting him to death. <coughs> Acts chapter 7, verse 59. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So there, Stephen prays for God not to hold this sin against them, against those who did this. Now, does he mean this? Don't hold this against them unjustly. If they don't repent on the day of judgment, God don't count them for this sin. He can't mean that. No way. Right? Because he knows the justice of God. He means it in the sense, if there are elect ones among those who are putting me to death, then don't hold this sin against them, but convert them. Save them. And were there elect ones among those who put him to death? At least one, right? The Apostle Paul was there giving approval to what was taking place. This is the same as Jesus when he was on the cross. He prayed in the same way. Now, he doesn't mean that exhaustively. He doesn't mean it exclusively. He doesn't mean that those who do these evil deeds, right, that they're not going to be held accountable for the sins that they committed, right? We know that's not the case because Caiaphas, Annas was there, Pilate, Herod, all of those took part in the death of Christ. Judas betrayed him, right? We know that Judas is going to get it on the day of judgment, Right? And Jesus even pronounces a curse upon him because of what 
he was going to do. He says it'd be better if he was never born than for this man to do the things that he's going to do because of the judgment that is going to come upon him. Right? So he means it in a, a qualified way, but he is there praying for those who are persecuting him, praying for those who are putting him to death. Stephen, while he's being put to death, praying for his enemies. What about in the Old Testament? Do we have examples in the Old Testament of people loving their enemies, those who are seeking to do evil? Yes, 1 Samuel 24. 1 Samuel 24. First Samuel 24 and verse 1. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off the corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterwards, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My lord the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eye has seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you, and may the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, Out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you, and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. So here, this passage right here, it has both, right? It has everything wrapped up into one. Does David love his enemy? Yes, he could have killed him. Saul's trying to kill David, so he could have said, okay, he's trying to kill me, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to get eye for eye, I'm going to get tooth for tooth. But he doesn't do that. He spares his life, so he loves his enemy by sparing his life. But does he mitigate his sin? No, he confronts his sin. He exposes his sin. He shows how vile Saul is, because I could have killed you, but I didn't. But you're trying to kill me. And may God give me vengeance against you. And may God judge between you and me this day, right? Seeing that I am innocent. And why are you listening to these worthless men who are trying to uh, make you come against me? So David's not sweeping his sin under the rug. He's not mitigating it. 
He's not saying he doesn't want vengeance. He does want God to get vengeance against his enemy. And he says, may the Lord do it. And may God please my cause against you. And he knows in due time, God is going to do that. But until that time, he's not going to do evil toward Saul. But he spared his life in this case. And he restrained his men. He could have just said, okay, well, I'm not going to kill him, but you guys have at it. But he withheld them. He kept them back so that they didn't do it either. So he did a very kind and loving thing toward Saul. Isn't that loving your enemy? He loved his enemy. But loving the enemy did not mean that he did not desire vengeance in due time. It didn't mean that he didn't pray for God to grant that to him. It didn't mean that he didn't expose Saul's sin. No, he did all those things. This would be like Romans chapter 12, right? Love your enemy and you do good to those who persecute you, right? If your enemy is hungry, give him something to eat. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. That's what he did right here. Didn't he heap burning coals on his head? Absolutely. Because on the day of judgment, when Saul stands before the Lord and, and is trying to justify himself in his pursuit of innocent David, what's he going to be able to say? This will be brought up. What are you talking about? Right? He, he wasn't a guilty man. He wasn't a traitor. He could have killed you in that cave, yet he spared your life. But you were doing this unjustly, Saul. His mouth will be silenced. His condemnation will be increased because of this incident right here. Right. So here, David loved his enemy who was trying to kill him, trying to kill him, and he would not do those things. How about 2 Kings? 2 Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6. Second Kings chapter 6, we'll start reading in verse 8. It says, Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servant, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him, so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who, uh, who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha the prophet, who is in Israel, he tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. And it was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent there horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with him. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Right, that's something we need to remember, right? Those who are with us are more than those that are with them. But doesn't the Lord have myriads and myriads of angels at his disposal? Right, he does. He can send them out whenever he wants to be assistance to those who will inherit eternal life. 
So God can protect us even with invisible angels, horses and chariots of fire all around. Okay, so verse 18. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? He answered, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with the sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids in the land of Israel. So here, these Syrians who are captured by Elisha and then led into the city of Samaria, right, in their blindness, when their eyes are open, well, now they're sitting ducks, right? They're, they're dead to rights. They're in Samaria, and the king of Israel is asking Elisha, do you want me to kill these men? Right? Should I kill them, execute them now? And Elisha says, no, how can you do this? How could you even think of this? Right? Would you do this to those that you've taken captive? Kill them in this in this time? We're not talking about in the midst of battle. Right? We're not talking about them raiding the city. These are people who have been delivered into your hand. Are you going to strike them? He said, no. Instead, what should you do? Give them bread and water. Make a feast for them. Set a feast before them. Give them bread and water. But they've been wandering around all day blind with nothing to eat or drink. They're famished. They're going to have to be sent back to Syria. So give them something to eat. Give them provisions. And then send them back to their master. And then that's what they did. So isn't that loving your enemy? They came to capture who? Who were they after? Elisha, right? They came for Elisha. God delivered them into his hands. But he says, no, feed them, give them some water, give them something to drink, make a feast for them, and then send them back to their master. So isn't that loving your enemy? Right there in the Old Testament. The Old, Old Testament with all mean God, right? This is what people say. But no, people aren't reading their Old Testaments. They're not reading it carefully. What else does this mean? But love your enemy. This is loving your enemy. The same thing that Jesus is teaching right here. Love your enemy Pray for those who persecute you. Now, why should we do this? Who is the example that we are to follow in the treatment of our enemies? Verse 45. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and send rain on the just and the unjust. So the example is God. Right? God loves in a sense, right, not with salvation. He doesn't give salvation to all men. But in a sense, he does love all men in that he gives to all mankind rain, right, and sun. The sun brings benefits, right? We know that without the sun, you can't grow anything. You can't live, right? It's beneficial to everyone. Without rain, you can't have your crops. You're going to have a famine. It's going to be disastrous. It's going to be miserable for everyone. And God causes the sun to shine on the whole world, 
on the whole world, and most of the people of the world are enemies of God. Most of them are wicked. Most of them will go to hell for all eternity, yet every day, what do they enjoy? The sun, it rises upon them, and God sends rain to them. He sends rain that falls and makes their ground fertile, causes the crops to grow, the trees to grow, all the things that are necessary in order to sustain their life in this present world. God does this, right? He does it for the wicked. He does it for the unjust, and he does it every single day. So what should we do? We should do the same thing. Whenever we see our enemy with some need in some dire situation, then we should render them assistance because this is what God does every single day. The sun doesn't just shine on the field of the righteous and the rain doesn't just fall on the field of the righteous. It falls on both the righteous and the wicked, right? Generally speaking, now God can withhold it. And there are times even when God can make a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. But commonly what is true day in and day out is that the sun shines on both. And in terms of material provisions, God gives those things to both the righteous and the wicked, the just and the unjust in equal measure. And so in this way, he shows this kind of love toward them. Now, again, this isn't all of God's love. They don't have salvation. They don't have the grace of God. They don't have the death of Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. He only gives that to his people, right? Only to the elect, only to the righteous. They're the ones that receive that, and they're the ones that will enter into the kingdom of God. But in this life, he even does good things for those who are wicked. Acts chapter 14. Acts 14, this is what the Apostle Paul teaches. Acts 14, verse 16. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So there, God, he did allow the nations to walk in their own way in terms of idolatry. He didn't give them his word. He didn't send the gospel to them. He didn't do that before the coming of Christ. The gospel and the word of God was given to Israel, to them almost exclusively, and some neighboring nations around them. But now, he's sending the gospel out to the ends of the earth. But even before the gospel goes out, the special revelation, God still had a witness to the Gentiles, to those who were living in idolatry, in that God sent them rain, right? He sent them rain, he gave them fruitful seasons. He satisfied their hearts with food and gladness. So God did that even in the past generations. And he's done that since the very beginning of the world. And he will do it until the end of the world. Okay, well, this is what God does for his enemies. So is God expecting us to do for our enemies something that he doesn't do for his? No, right? And is he expecting us to do it in a greater measure than what he does for them? No, no way. He does it for them every day. He, we're not going to have to do this every day, right? It may be here or there that we have to do this, but for the most part, our enemies probably don't want anything to do with us, and we're not going to have anything to do with them. We're not going to see them. They're not going to see us. But if the need arises, if the occasion arises, then we should assist them, and this is the basis for doing so. This is what God does, and we are to be like our Father in heaven. 
verse 46. It says, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Here, the world's love, the world's love teaches even unbelievers and sinners to do good to their friends and family. And they do this, right? This is common in the world. They know, right, even unbelieving fathers and mothers do good things for their children. They give them gifts. They feed them, right? They provide for them. Even many times they spoil them. They give them many gifts. They want them to have a good life. They want them to have all these types of things. And friends, they have friends, people, acquaintances that they've known for many years. And when they see them, they greet them, they hug them, they kiss them, they shake their hands, they do these types of things. They even give gifts to them and they enjoy being in their company and fellowship. And if one of their friends or one of their family members has a need, some dire situation arises, they'll give to them, right? They'll do those things. Even many people today are giving, I met a woman today, giving money to Ukrainians, right? Who are in dire need over there because of this uh, crisis that is going on. People she doesn't even know, but she has sympathy for them because of this situation. And so she's giving money, probably giving money to some organization that's taking 90% of it and then sending 10% on to them. So anyway, so people do this even in this present world. They do it to those that they love and those that are their friends. This is common and this is natural. According to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Verse 8, this is why the apostle says what he says here. 1 Timothy 5, 8. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Because most unbelievers know that they should provide for their relatives and they should provide for the members of their own household. Even unbelieving children know they should take care of their aging parents, right? And they do this. Even unbelieving fathers know that they should care for their children, that they should provide for them. So if a Christian doesn't even do this, then how can he be a Christian? He's denied the faith. He's worse than an unbeliever. Even unbelievers know that they ought to do these things just because of common grace and because of natural law that is within them. They know to do this and they actually do it. Many times, not all the time, but many times they do these things. That's the same argument Jesus is making here. If you love those who love you, then what good is that, right? This is what unbelievers do, right? They do these types of things, right? What reward are you going to get? Tax collectors do this. Tax collectors love those who love them. And he doesn't mean repentant tax collectors like Zacchaeus. He means unrepentant tax collectors. Sinning tax collectors, they love those who love them. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So this is common in the world. But our love is to exceed the love of this world. Isn't that back to what he said in verse 20? If your righteousness does not exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That means our love has to be an uncommon love, a unique love, a love that is like the love of God. And God loves not only those who love him. God doesn't just love the righteous, but he also loves the wicked. And he does good things 
to them. Therefore, we are to love as God loves, not like the world. The world doesn't do this. The world does not love their enemies. They don't do these types of things to those who hate them. They would spit in their face, right? They would kill them if they could. This is what they would do, but we are not to be like that. God does good to his enemies, so we should do good to our enemies as well. Now, when he says do good to them, love them, does he mean never talk about their sin? Well, does God talk about sin? So does the love God has for his enemies mean that God doesn't talk about their sin? No, he doesn't do that, not one bit. God talks a lot about their sin in the Bible. He speaks judgment against their sin. He speaks about condemnation that is coming upon them because of their sin. So loving our enemy, doing good to them, doesn't mean that we mitigate sin, doesn't mean that we pass over it, doesn't mean that we never talk about it, doesn't mean that we don't bring the word of God to bear upon it. Because God loves his enemies, but he also has given to us his word. And his word makes very clear declarations about what he's going to do to his enemies. So his love for them does not mean that he's silent in regards to their sin. He loves them while also speaking against their sin in the word of God. So then what are we supposed to do? Love the way that God loves, right? Do good to them while also pronouncing God's declaration, his word concerning their sin and concerning the judgment of God that is coming if they do not repent. So God, he doesn't overlook sin, right? He sends rain to people. He causes the sun to shine upon them while also speaking against their sin, while condemning their sin, right? While being forthright about their sin. So this is the way that we are supposed to do as well. This is similar to like Luke chapter 17, verse 1. Or Luke chapter 17, verse 3, where many people say that we need to forgive, have unconditional forgiveness. So we just, if someone does something to us, we just have to forgive them unconditionally. But does God forgive unconditionally? No. He does not do that. Verse 3, 17, verse 3, Luke 17, 3. Pay attention to yourself. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Forgive him when? If he repents. Well, who forgives like that? God. Does God forgive without repentance? No. So he doesn't expect us to forgive without repentance. We should be willing to forgive, ready to forgive, but we cannot forgive if someone will not repent. Right? But if they do repent, then we forgive them. That's the same as here. We are to love the way that God loves. That means do good to them, pray for them, but also speak against their sin and be forthright with them concerning these things. What has happened today is people take love to mean silence about sin. Don't be forthright about sin. Just sweep it all under the rug or talk about it in obscure, roundabout ways, beat around the bush. Don't be direct. Don't say this. Don't say that because we just have to love them. But that's not, that's not consistent with the love of God. God's love is the standard that has to define the way that we love. We have to love as God. And that's verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Right, perfect. Now, he doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect, spotless, sinless, as our heavenly Father is perfect. Of course, we can't achieve that. But he means that's the standard. 
That's the standard. Whatever is true of God in the way that he is relating to the wicked in this world, then that's the perfection that we have to strive for. That's the standard, not some substandard, not some lesser standard. This is the standard is to love and to love the way that God loves. That is the expectation in what is to determine how we love our neighbor as ourself. This would be like 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. And verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So we are to be holy as God is holy. Right? And when he says that, where is he quoting from? Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2. So that was the expectation in the Old Testament, to be holy as God was holy. Well, was God sending rain upon the wicked in the Old Testament? Of course he was. So even there in the Old Testament, the expectation was be holy as God is holy, which is the same as Jesus says here, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You must love the way that God loves. And couldn't anyone with a half a brain figure out that God was doing good to the wicked because the rain was falling? I mean, they know that, don't they? Doesn't anyone who's reading the Bible know from the Old Testament that God is the one that created the world, that God is the one that created the sun, He's the one that causes it to shine on the wicked and that without the sun and without rain, they're all going to die. And yet every day, God does what for them? He's sending these things to them. So all of this information is obvious and it's available before Jesus says these things. So he's not inventing something new or creating some new standard. He's simply repeating what was already there, but people chose to neglect. And that's what he's doing in this situation. Okay, one last passage, and that would be Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10 and verse 25. Luke 10, 25 says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Right. So here we go again. Who is my neighbor? Who am I obligated to show this love for? Right. So he said this. Now, again, no one does this perfectly. Right? No one does this in a way that can cause him to inherit eternal life. It's much more difficult to prove, in a sense, that people don't love God because most, many of the times those things have to deal with the heart and with what is unseen. But in terms of the neighbor, that is the one that is more outward, more visible, more obvious, whether we're loving our neighbor as ourself. Right? This man seeking to justify himself that he has kept these two commandments is now asking Jesus to define who is my neighbor, right? Who am I obligated to love as myself? And Jesus replied, 
A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed him, leaving him half dead. Okay, now this man going from Jerusalem to Jericho. Right? It doesn't say if he, what, what his nationality was, but I think it's a safe assumption to, to say that he was probably a Jew. If he's going from Jerusalem to Jericho, it's likely that he is a Jewish man, right? That he's a Jewish man who's going this way. But really, that doesn't matter. All that matters is he's what? He's a man, right? He's a person. He's a man, and he's left half dead on the side of the road. Does he have a need? A desperate need, right? We're not talking about giving him lemonade or cookies, uh, a Christmas gift, something like that. Right? That's not. This is not what's going on here. This is a man who is in a life or death situation. He needs help. He needs assistance. And if someone doesn't come to his aid, he's going to die here on the side of the road. Okay. Verse 31. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by the other side. The priest, a religious man, sees him, passes by the other side. He does not assist him, doesn't help him in any way. Likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, Passed by the other side. Also, another religious man who does not provide any assistance. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So notice that first, he had compassion. Compassion in his heart, and then that compassion led to him doing something about it. The other two had no compassion, nothing in their heart, no love. And then because they had no love in their heart, they had no love in their hands. This man has love in his heart, and then it leads out into his hands. It says, He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So here, though the man that was left half dead, he, he's not a friend and he's not a family member of the Samaritan. He's a complete stranger. And if he's a Jewish man, in some ways, he's a natural enemy to him. Okay? Yet, what does he do? He helps him. He helps him. He provides assistance to him. Because the man was going to die. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Love your enemy. If your enemy is left half dead on the side of the road, and you come across him, then you need to do whatever's necessary to give service to him, to give aid to him, to save his life. Right? And in that way, you're loving your enemy. That's what the Good Samaritan did, and that's the example or standard that is set before us as well. Okay. So we'll go ahead and stop there and...